The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Jacob Schultz, and it's the Lawfare Podcast, January 2nd, 2022. Today, from the archives, we're bringing you an episode from February 2020. It's a conversation between Benjamin Wittes and Afshan Ostevar, an assistant professor of national security affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School. Tomorrow, it's the two-year anniversary of the killing of the head of the Quds Force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, Qasem Soleimani. The conversation between Wittes and Ostevar is a great look at what the feeling was about the killing merely a month removed from its happening, and also gives a detailed look at the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the subject of a book written by Asavar and a rich subject that often gets ignored by Western audiences. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 11th, 2020. Afshan Ostevar is the Associate Chair for Research and an Assistant Professor of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School. He is also the author of Vanguard of the Imam, Religion, Politics, and Iran's Revolutionary Guard, which is exactly what it sounds like, a book about Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, which has, of course, been in the news of late because of the killing of the head of the Quds Force of the Revolutionary Guards Corps by the United States, Qasem Soleimani. I talked to Astavar last week about the fallout from the Soleimani killing, about how it was all playing in Iran and why things are so quiet, we talked about whether people made a mountain out of a molehill at the time the Soleimani killing happened or whether the blowback just hasn't happened yet. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 506, Afshan Astavar on Iran's Revolutionary Guard. So we have now had a few weeks past the actual event of the Soleimani strike, which triggered a you know, quite robust debate about at the time about how uh, forward-leaning, uh, if you're positive about it, or reckless, if you're negative about it, the decision to go ahead with that was quite apart from any process questions or legality questions. I'm interested in your thoughts on how the passage of time has matured the debate. Does the strike look better to you today than it did the day it happened, or or does it look worse? Well, in some ways, it's it's a really strange... Uh, the passage of time has been pretty strange with this, right? Like, you had, you had the assassination, which was a big deal. Iran responded with ballistic missiles on a military base aiming for uh, uh, U.S. soldiers, hitting the barracks and whatnot. Which was, you know, in any other context, and uh, a clear act of war that would have led to, you know, some sort of in-kind response at the very least. Uh, the United States didn't respond in the kerfluffle of of the moment. Iran also happened to down uh, one of their uh, own civilian passenger jets or a Ukrainian flight with mostly Iranian passengers, which completely overshadowed the moment in Iran. Right, so. Iran lost Soleimani. You had these mass sort of funerals that the state was really sort of um, eating up and, and, and using to good effect in terms of sort of propaganda and, and sort of uh, showing that, that the nation was coming together to, to sort of mourn the loss of a national hero. And then you had this, this ballistic missile strike, which could have 
started a war. And I think in some ways, Iran expected it to, to start a, uh, a shooting war of uh, a week or so at the very least. But then they shot down a passenger uh, jet, which, which overshadowed all of it, completely eclipsed it. In Iran, I think, I think the moment is still sort of connected to the passenger jet. You know, Soleimani has sort of been an afterthought, I think, for a lot of Iranians, which is perplexing, I think, to the Islamic Republic, which wanted to make this sort of a very long-lasting um, sort of uh, memorial um, where they could sort of use Soleimani to sort of create a rally around the flag effect. Um, but it didn't work. And for the United States, I think uh, the moment was completely eclipsed by the impeachment hearings, now by the Iowa caucuses and, and, and everything going on with that. It's almost as if it didn't happen, it, at least in terms of the way that it's being covered, which is why I started this whole sort of line about it feeling strange. Uh, it feels strange. I think that Iran is still planning uh, responses. I don't think it's in any way over, but I think we have hit this moment where we don't really know what the effect of this assassination was. All right. There's a huge amount there and let's unpack it a bit. First of all, you say that it has been eclipsed by the in Iran by the downing of the passenger jet. You know, the United States, you know, has a bad case, national case of ADHD, but we are capable of, if attacked by a foreign nation and there's some domestic disaster, dealing with both at the same time, why does the downing of the passenger jet eclipse a, you know, attack on a senior government official uh, by a foreign uh, from, you know, hostile state in Iran. Well, I mean, understanding that this was a result of a sort of heightened state of alert following the Soleimani strike, why are they so intimately connected that one profoundly distracts from the other? You know, I think any sympathy for Soleimani in general, you know, if, if you can at all generalize uh, on, you know, about a population of 80 million people, which of course is impossible to do. So take everything that I say, you know, with a grain of salt. But to generalize for a second, I think that any sympathy for Soleimani was sort of tenuous at best. Soleimani really became sort of, quote unquote, a national hero because of a propaganda campaign to make him one promoted by the IRGC and the Islamic Republic itself with regards to the fight against ISIS. Before the fight against ISIS, Soleimani was not a national hero. He wasn't even you know, that well-known of a figure, uh, and he certainly wasn't revered. Uh, in some ways, he was sort of you know, a, a stain on Iran because he was sort of seen as you know, somebody who was doing things that uh, the international community, particularly Europe and the United States, didn't like um, supporting Hezbollah, supporting Hamas, uh, supporting the Assad regime, etc. The ISIS campaign changed the, all that uh, in a way, or at least tried to. But still, Soleimani was associated with the regime. He was still part and parcel of a regime that is quite repressive to the people. And, and, and you have to think back, just in the fall, Iran had a major protest movement uh, that was going on in, in, in medium-sized towns, in smaller towns, in working-class uh, neighborhoods, uh, and particularly among the young, in places where sympathy for the Islamic Republic used to be quite high. That is to say, they're, they're sort of provincial cities uh, and towns that uh, generally were more religious, more conservative, and therefore were, were somehow you know, more inclined towards the Islamic Republic. But you had this major protest movement that was put down violently by a military crackdown in some places, including tanks, automatic uh, weapons, uh, etc. So Iranians were just reeling from from the the, the put down of this uh, of this protest movement, which killed hundreds of young people, and they were met with this moment of of Soleimani being being killed. Now. We don't really know what to take from uh, the, the massive amounts of people that, that came out to support Soleimani in the funeral processions in Tehran and Kerman and other places. 
I tend to think that that some people genuinely were moved and wanted to participate. I think some people wanted to be part of a historical moment and wanted to participate. But we also know that the regime has a very long track record of of sort of you know busing people to uh, to, to public events, right? Of sort of manufacturing crowds, and so that certainly would have been part of it too. So it's difficult to say how much of it was manufactured and how mo- how much of it was sort of organic. Uh, sort of sympathy for Soleimani. But when the regime downed, or when the IRGC downed the Ukrainian Flight 752, I think the Iranian people were reminded of just how odious this regime can be, and that the and that the regime lied to the Iranian people, despite knowing full well that they had done it for three days, uh, I think sort of, you know, was was just sort of pouring gasoline on the fire in some sense. This is why you had sort of protests against the regime uh, following sort of the them admitting that they had sort of, uh, you know, accidentally shot down this flight. So I think it just sort of brought everything back, whatever that national moment of unity where, where people who, who maybe, you know, didn't care about the IRGC or maybe even the Supreme Leader, but, you know, felt something for Soleimani, saw in him something, some aspiration of what they had hoped Iran to be. Uh, I think that was just overshadowed by this reminder that the regime is just intractably unjust uh, to the population. You also said you don't think it's over, the Iranian response. And I I want to start with the question of whether you've actually understated the weirdness of the American response to the Iranian response so far. So we had a situation where the Iranians responded with ballistic missiles aimed at U.S. forces, which, as you note, would have in any other context been understood as a, you know, use of force against U.S. military forces that required a response. Here it did not. And in fact, the president quite actively misrepresented the severity of the attack saying that nothing, no one had been injured, whereas in fact there were multiple uh, traumatic head injuries in response to it, which he seems to have, even now, to be diminishing in retrospect. So let's talk about the Iranian side in a minute. My impression here is that the U.S. side is kind of actively diminishing the seriousness of the Iranian response by way of playing down the need for a U.S. counter response. Is that fair? Uh, I think so. I, I think the, the other element to this is that Iran telegraphed its response. It, it, it alerted forces in the base, not American forces, but allied forces, that they would be attacking uh, the base. They seemed to indicate, if not, which buildings would be targeted, which general area would be targeted. And so U.S. forces had hours to sort of, you know, make alternative arrangements, take cover, get into bomb shelters, etc. So I think there was some sense from uh, from the United States that, that Iran was still wanting to avoid escalation or at least severe escalation. That being said, you don't launch ballistic missiles with 500-pound warheads into populated military bases into another country against an adversary and not expect sort of, you know, escalation to occur. You also can't do it and and expect that nobody's going to get hurt. Iran would have had to have been comfortable with the idea that people would have been killed. And I think a lot of people who have looked at this attack closer over time, sort of the as evidence sort of comes out of what buildings they attacked, et cetera, I'm not convinced that, that Iran didn't want to kill people. I, I think they did, but there's a confusion there. And I think that's part of what stayed uh, sort of the U.S. hand in response. It's a difficult thing. You never want to be somebody who sort of uh, you know, promotes uh, military action. At least I don't want to be that person. On the other hand, it's it's... It's perplexing uh, to know that another country uh, can fire ballistic missiles at, at U.S. military forces and, and not sort of uh, be met with uh, anything more than, uh, OK, even Stephen now. That, that I think, is, is still sort of perplexing to me. 
But I, I can't say why the United States didn't respond other than sort of I think what the president was trying to achieve is is ultimately what he achieved in, in the short term, at least, which was not escalating to a war, which is, you know, it, it, likely what would have happened had we responded. We, we should also remember Iran threatened Haifa, Israel and Dubai, uh, UAE as their next targets if we had responded. And, you know, you kind of have to take them at their word. Uh, and so perhaps there was also uh, allies uh, in those countries that asked the United States not to respond. I don't know, but that could also be part of the story. Okay, so then you have the pause in the Iranian response. It was less severe in the short term than a lot of people expected it to be. It didn't escalate in the short term, either because of U.S. restraint or because of the airplane downing or both. And yet you say you don't think Iran is done. So what are you expecting over what time frame? I, I think the time frame is open. The Iranians are, are quite patient in this regard. I think they will choose their targets carefully. They may have foiled plots, you know, leading up to whatever attacks they, they conduct. They may, not they may not conduct those attacks themselves. In fact, probably likely they won't. Uh, it'll be done through through clients and other states, or it could be done through sort of uh, covert uh, intelligence operatives in, in other countries, as, as we've seen in the past. But I think anything goes. I think they want to kill people in response. Uh, and I don't know if they've decided on who they'd like to kill, whether it's, you know, uh, they, they really want to sort of get a, uh, a high level target, um, uh, American target, or whether they would be satisfied with lower level targets, military uh, or, or uh, let's say civilian embassy workers in another country, that sort of thing. I assume that they're planning. I assume that they are they are looking at their options, but I don't think they're in any rush. I think the ballistic missile strike was sort of their way of, of sort of saying we did something. On the other hand. Because it was overshadowed uh, by by uh, the Ukraine flight, and because it didn't actually kill anybody, despite them saying that it killed you know dozens of Americans, I don't think that they are placated. Um, I don't think that the IRGC is placated. I think the one thing that we we often don't like to ascribe to states is is sort of that the the, the personal aspect to it, right? Soleimani was was a general. He was a you know he was a military leader, but he was also a friend of of some very powerful people uh, who do not mind using violence you know uh, in in their politics. And I I think I think there is some uh, desire for vengeance uh, on the part of IRGC officers as well as on the part of Iraqi uh, militant leaders. We have to remember that Soleimani wasn't the only one killed. Ali Abu Al-Mohandes was also killed, the leader um, of Qatawa Hezbollah, and an Iraqi official. And I think there are there are people uh, in Iraq that also want to see sort of Americans in body bags as a response. So I, I think they're planning. But I, I think in the short term, what they are aiming to achieve now is expelling U.S. forces from Iraq. And I think they are trying to sort of mind their P's and Q's to make that happen. Uh, in some respects, you still have rockets falling in U.S. embassy grounds and other places. But but I think that's what they're trying to achieve in the short term. All right. So let's pivot from there to uh, the IRGC, about which you wrote a book. And so, I, you know, in the wake of the strike, there was a lot of discussion over how important was Soleimani to the IRGC Quds Force and to the IRGC more generally, and how significant would a decapitation strike be with respect to these organizations? And so I'm, I'm curious, we've had a few weeks to breathe on it. And, uh, you know, is this a situation where this is an institution with a lot of depth and it will generate the leadership it needs? Or is this a situation in which the, you know, removing the leadership is a profound blow to the organization that is hard to heal from? Uh, I think there are aspects of both uh, in there. I, I think above all, and sort of, you know, my main argument 
on this issue is that the IRGC is an institution. Uh, it's a strong organization. The Gold's Force is a division of the IRGC. It, it itself is also a strong organization. You will have people who will pick up where Soleimani left off, and you won't have a lot of signal loss, right? They won't lose their step. Momentum will continue, et cetera. I don't think operations will suffer much. I don't think policy will change much. I think things are pretty much going to stay the same, and we won't see much impact of Soleimani's death uh, from our vantage point, at least. However, Soleimani was uniquely talented and skilled in his job, and particularly in, in developing sort of strong relationships and relationships of trust with the, the militant leaders that Iran supports outside of Iran, particularly in Iraq uh, and in Lebanon. He didn't know Arabic before he became uh, the, the head of the Golds Force. Uh, after he did become the head of the Golds Force, uh, he made a concerted effort to learn Arabic. He learned it fluently. Uh, he raised his children to learn it. His daughter uh, now gives uh, speeches in Lebanon in, in uh, sort of uh, memorials to her father in, in, in fluent Lebanese, uh, Levantine Arabic. He did everything he could to ingratiate himself uh, to those people that uh, that mattered the most to Iran outside of Iran. And I think that takes a special talent. I don't think that that's just something that anybody can do. Um, he had a charisma about him. He had a persona that, that's not easy to achieve. So I think you will lose something uh, there. But I don't think it will end up mattering all that much, because at the end of the day, the reason why Iran has allies is because Iran gives those allies money and guns. And those allies have no other avenue to get that money or those guns. Iran is kind of the only game in town for these groups that it supports. And so long as it continues to sort of uh, these groups want to continue that support, they're going to continue to, to, to play nice with Iran, whether it's as genuine as it was with uh, Soleimani or if the genuineness is, is somewhat more feigned with his replacement. I don't think it really matters much. So I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm getting increasingly confused about whether the <laughs> strike looks better or worse from several weeks out than it did at the time. On the one hand, the retaliation has been quite modest. On the other hand, there's apparently more to come. On the one hand, you know, Soleimani is a, a quite big target. On the other hand, it won't diminish the fighting capability of the IRGC or the Quds Force, and it'll it, it will erode. Uh, the warmth of their relationship with uh, numerous proxy forces, but they they have no address to go to anyway, uh, so they'll keep dealing with them. And on the fifth hand, there were four fingers and a thumb. So how do you put this? You know, like how do you put this all together? Well, it's it's not easy. It, you know, and you know, we, we need to be clear that that we have to have humility when we talk about these groups because these are clandestine groups. I mean, in some ways we're all speculating on, on, you know, the information that we see from the outside, you know, or, or the, the little information that they're able to give us. So there's a lot of things that, that none of us know. And uh, you know, that, that makes, that makes the conversation uh, both uh, I think less satisfying uh, but also much easier to sort of, you know, exaggerate and spin uh, depending on what your angle is, right? So there's just as much space for those people who say Soleimani was sui generis and getting rid of him, you know, completely de decapitated the Colts force and they'll never find a leader like him again. And, you know, they'll, they'll, be, uh, they'll be marching blind into the future. Uh, and then you have people who uh, I'm, I'm more in, inclined towards believing because it's my own assessment, which believes in sort of the institutionalism of the IRGC uh, and thinks that, that things will continue on. Even if Soleimani will be missed, there will be somebody else uh, to take his place and somebody else that can still build those relationships. So, yeah, it, it, it isn't uh, very satisfying. But I think part of the problem with sort of doing history in real time is that it's always subject to change, right? And it's always true at the moment, and it can be untrue 
five minutes from now. And so I think if, if this was the end of time and somebody wrote a history book about the Soleimani strike, you could say it was effective. Um, you could say you, you got rid of, you know, a, an important commander who was uh, important in the field. All Iran had in response was, you know, a missile strike that didn't end up uh, killing anybody. It hurt some people. Uh, but it didn't kill anybody. They lost their national moment because they made a mistake by downing a civilian flight. Uh, we didn't enter a war. You know, we're we're doing just fine. We didn't change our policies or anything. Uh, we being the U.S. here. So from this vantage point, I think, you know, you could say, yeah, we we got away with it. It was successful. But the problem is, I don't I don't think it's over. And and I think there there are second, third and fourth, you know, order uh, effects here. Uh, that we've yet to encounter, right? We don't know what's going to happen in Iraq. We don't know what's going to happen if uh, the Iraqi government does uh, try to force uh, the United States military out. We may willingly, uh, despite what the president has said, leave uh, if they if they ask us to. Uh, but we don't know what this means in terms of you know the war against ISIS. ISIS could could sort of reform and make inroads in Iraq again. We don't know what this is going to mean for the for the Syrian conflict. We just don't know. So I think while it's at the moment, you can sort of make some uh, tentative conclusions about sort of the Soleimani strike. I think the problem is that really we're going to be dealing with this issue for another five years or ten years. This wasn't something that just happened in 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 sort of January of twenty twenty and ended in January twenty twenty. I think it's going to affect both sort of what we do in the Middle East for for at least the next five years, and certainly our relationship with the Islamic Republic for the next five, 10 years. I, I don't think it'll go away. I think it's a really important problem uh, that is yet to sort of fully uh, uh, develop. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Talk to me about the IRGC. You know, when when pe- people refer to it in U.S. policy conversation, it, it has a kind of, I don't know, people talk about it like the KGB or something, a kind of, quasi something of an intelligence agency, something of an overseas covert action operation, something of a military force. It has some domestic security components. And I think as an institution, your book aside, it is rather understudied. Um, So first of all, am I right about that? Secondly, what is the best way to understand what it is? Yes, you are right about that. It is understudied. Not to plug my book, but to plug my book, I think the best way to understand what it is is to read my book uh, and to read you know, uh, the scholarship of, of other scholars who have written on the IRGC. Uh, there's a handful now uh, of, of books and articles that have been written on the IRGC, but th- that's still very little. I think the best way to understand the IRGC is to understand it as not separate from the Islamic Republic of Iran. That is to say that the ruling regime in Iran, the ruling system, uh, as they call it, the IRGC is part and parcel of it. Uh, it was born in the midst of the revolution as an institution to defend the revolution, right? To, and, and what is the revolution? Well, the revolution is Iran's theocracy, right? It's Islamic system. So because its writ is, uh, and main responsibility is to defend the revolution, this makes it sort of the purview uh, of what it can get involved in very vast and very broad, right? What does it mean to be, uh, you know, an enemy of the revolution? What is a threat to the revolution? It could be ideas, it could be culture, it could be books, it could be movies, it could be politics. It could be state adversaries. It could be anything. And so because of that, the IRGC, although it is first and foremost a military organization, has expanded uh, very broadly into all aspects of the Islamic Republic uh, as an intelligence institution, uh, as a security apparatus, uh, as a state contractor in terms of uh, industrial development. They build dams and railroads and and uh, are involved in the telecommunications and system in Iran. They uh, are involved in sort of the, the technological development uh, in Iran and, 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 you know, sort of are the, the DARPA, uh, if you will, for, uh, uh, for the development of, of science and technology in Iran. 
Uh, they are part of the, the sort of uh, increasing surveillance state in Iran. Um, and that's just the domestic side. Outside of Iran, you know, they have this belief that in order to protect the revolution, uh, you need to sort of uh, change the context of, of the geography around Iran, right? Uh, and what does that mean? Iran is threatened first and foremost from their perspective from the United States and its allies, um, what they would call imperialism. Uh, they see as, as anything that, that is connected with the United States and U.S. influence in the region. So that includes Saudi Arabia, uh, the UAE, Bahrain, but also and especially Israel, right? So their, their first order of business in the region is encouraging the development of politics and militaries that are in opposition to sort of the, the pro-U.S. bloc in the Middle East. And this is what they sort of justify their involvement in Lebanon by supporting Hezbollah and Syria by supporting the Assad regime in Iraq by supporting Shia militias, in Yemen uh, by supporting the Houthis, uh, etc. This is how they justify that activity. And from their perspective, they're having some success in that regard in sort of flipping the script of the Middle East from what had been, let's say, a very pro-Western environment to something that is closer to a pro-Iranian environment. And so for them, safeguarding the revolution requires this sort of re-engineering of the region into something that is sort of, if not pro-Iranian, acceptable to sort of Iranian political positions, which in this case generally means anti-U.S. and anti-Israel. You know, you've described a range of activities that is so sort of magnificently large, you know, everything from domestic surveillance and government contracting to overseas uh, military stuff. What do we know about the size of the organization and how many people work for it? Right. This is where it gets a little a little fuzzy. Iran doesn't generally put out accurate numbers for, for lots of things. Uh, so a lot of the numbers that we go by uh, in terms of uh, the IRGC are old numbers that uh, you know, may not have even originated with Iran. I've seen Iranian news sites connected to the IRGC use facts from the CIA fact book, for example. Uh, why they do this is anybody's guess. But what we understand is the IRGC is about 125,000 people, the vast majority of which are conscripts uh, who serve between a year and a half to just over two years uh, of service. And it's distinct from the Iranian military, right? Right. The regular military, which is known as uh, the Artesh, is uh, is much larger in, in terms of personnel. Uh, it's closer to 350,000. Uh, again, the, the vast majority uh, or the large uh, majority are conscripts uh, that serve the, the same amount of service. Where the IRGC sort of um, multiplies uh, its forces is with uh, this division uh, that is uh, a division that it has uh, called the Basige, which is a you would call it a paramilitary, I think, is, is the best way to, to describe it. But it is also um, a very complicated organization in all the ways that I just described uh, the IRGC. The Bastige, unlike the, the rest of the IRGC or the regular military, is not a conscript force. It's a volunteer force. Uh, you actually are vetted uh, before you are accepted into its ranks. Uh, that vetting can be quite serious, uh, something similar to a background check that a federal employee would have to go through in the United States. Uh, or it can be very sort of loose in the sense of, you know, uh, does the, the head of the Basige in your neighborhood know your parents? Yes. OK, go ahead and sign up. The Basige exists uh, at various levels from uh, literally kindergartens all the way up to uh, sort of government offices. At the lower levels, when you're talking about children, it's essentially sort of a uh, uh, something akin to a religious Boy Scouts uh, or Cub Scouts, right? It's about sort of being involved in kind of patriotic endeavors and 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 uh, sort of religious, attending religious classes and that sort of stuff. That's basically meant to sort of create affinity for the uh, citizen, the student citizen uh, for the regime. 
But when you get to the higher levels, it's a security apparatus that is involved in generally domestic security. So oftentimes when you have protests or or any kind of congregation of, of people in civil society in Iran, it's the Basij generally who, who break it up. If, if the police don't do it, the Basij will do it. So if you remember like the 2009 uh, election unrest, the Basijis were the guys on the backs of motorcycles that rode into the the crowds of people with, you know, truncheons and, and chains and, you know, maybe a odd handgun here or there uh, and just kind of crack skulls and try to disperse people. But the Basij is also heavily involved in, in other aspects as well. The, the surveillance state, uh, cyber activity, monitoring, intelligence, even the military. And the Basij is in the millions in terms of its, um, its personnel. Now, Again, the vast majority of that is probably children uh, who don't matter as much in, in the ways that we're talking about. But you still have, let's say, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of essentially paramilitary forces uh, that are quite active both within Iran, but also can be deployed outside of Iran. And what is the Quds Force, the, the operation that Soleimani specifically ran? Right. The Quds Force is, is uh, which means Jerusalem Force. And as the name sort of implies, it's, it's, its whole sort of reason for being is the eventual liberation of Jerusalem from, from Israel. That's sort of its, its ethos. It is closest to, to what we would call sort of the special forces in, the, in uh, sort of the U.S. military, which means their role is less to fight themselves and more to sort of they're deployed outside of Iran, and their role is to be in small numbers in support of sort of pro-Iranian uh, militias and militaries. Uh, they provide training, they provide uh, funding, they provide logistics, um, but they are sort of, you know, specially trained uh, foreign operatives. They, you know, um, can specialize in sort of intelligence. They can specialize in things like bomb making uh, and ordnance. Uh, some of them do tactics. Uh, some of them can be sort of do uh, other sort of special operations kind of tactics like uh, like snipers or, or um, other things. But basically, they work with others. They are they are facilitators of Iran's support outside of Iran. All of this sounds a little bit like a parallel state, right? You've got a military You've got a police force, you've got an intelligence apparatus, and then you have you have schools, you have conscription into a regular military, and then you have these parallel institutions through the Revolutionary Guard Corps in traditional either fascist or communist states. This is a familiar thing, right? You have the Red Army, but you also have... Uh, you know, the party organs, right? You have the Hitler Youth is an, is an institution of the party as much as it is of the state. These parallel institutions in the Iranian regime, are they part of the government? Are they separate? Are they just direct instrumentalities of the supreme leader? Like what what are they in relation to the normal organs of the state? So w when I talk about the Islamic Republic, I, I use my language sort of, uh, sort of specifically, and, and not everybody does this, but I try to sort of uh, use these terms consistently in this way to help explain it. When I talk about the government in Iran, I talk about the elected government, right? So, so literally the people who have been elected to do things. That includes parliament, that includes the, the executive arm. When you talk about the regime, you talk about everything that's unelected. Uh, so the supreme leader... Uh, the Guardian Council, which vets candidates and laws, uh, the judiciary, the IRGC, those I call uh, the regime, right? These are the unelected institutions of power. The state is the government and, and the regime sort of put together. So that being said, the, the whole large apparatus uh, of the IRGC is firmly part of the regime, but in practice is also, you know, the foundation of the state. Uh, you can't get around it. And this is why sort of in my book and in my writing, I try to I, I try to argue and show that the that the IRGC is not simply just 
this terrorist organization that just happens to be an appendage of the Islamic Republic uh, that can be either sort of treated differently or lopped off or ignored or whatever, it is part and parcel of the Islamic Republic. And everything it does is part and parcel of the Islamic Republic. It is all signed off and blessed off by the Supreme Leader. And it is all very much to the advantage of the Supreme Leader, both domestically and abroad. So I don't think you can you can easily uh, divide it from the state or sever it from the state. And I think your your analogies towards um, sort of fascist Germany or uh, the Soviet Union, I think, are quite apt. I think those are the closest parallels that you have to what's going on in Iran. The Basij is, in a sense, that that party organ, right? It is the Hitler Youth or the brown shirts. It is the institution with which the regime uh, tries to indoctrinate children at a young age and develop them into being, you know, the right citizens that they want to, to sort of see proliferate in society that have the right views, uh, the right orthodoxies and, and, and the right politics. The difference between Iran and I think Germany and the Soviet Union is that the way that Iran goes about it is much looser. And there's a lot more informality in the Bas siege uh, than, uh, to my understanding, there was in, in either fascist Germany or, or the Soviet Union. I think that's the difference. Iran has, has never created that one party, right? They've never articulated it as such. Uh, and so everything is kind of diffused in some ways to sort of the regional and local levels. And uh, that keeps it uh, informal, but it also makes it cheaper. Uh, there's less money that goes into it. So your distinction between the uh, under the rubric of the state between the regime in which you group the IRGC and the government, you know, has a a, a kind of obvious resonance to uh, you know this sort of idea of a deep state that actually runs things through whatever uh, you know whatever elected government may actually come about for whatever period of time, it does suggest that these governments are relatively transient. And it seems to me the last few years have really borne that out in the sense that you go from one reformist government to a, you know, quite flamboyantly conservative government in Ahmadinejad and then to Rouhani, who's a kind of another reformist and Iranian policy doesn't seem to change very much. And so I guess the question is, is there really a war between the reformists and the kind of organs of the regime? Or is the reformist movement merely a veneer that the, that the, that the regime allows to exist domestically, to cool off passions, and puts an, an an elegant face on the regime in international relations. Are they really in tension with one another, or is it a kind of uh, good cop bad cop uh, arrangement that uh, you know actually presents the face of the regime that the regime would like the world and its own people to see? Uh, I you know to be unsatisfying again. I think there, I think there's there's aspects of both there. I mean, there's there's real tensions, I think, between the reformists and and the hardliners and, and the IRGC. You would you would pretty firmly put in the IRG in in the hardliner camp uh, on most issues. But those tensions generally are about relationships with uh, with the international community. I think the reformists see that the, the best way to improve the Islamic Republic, the best way to strengthen the Islamic Republic is to be less antagonistic to the West, less antagonistic to the United States, and, and to find ways of doing business with Europe, etc. This is what the nuclear deal was kind of about. On the other hand, the reformists are firmly part of, of the Islamic Republic. They are part of the revolution. They, are, they, they, they believe in the system. And in that respect, they don't disagree with the IRGC on, on everything. They may feel that the IRGC is too heavy-handed domestically. They may be more open uh, to sort of uh, uh, having a, a, a looser, less restrictive society in Iran, you know, uh, allowing women to attend uh, football games, 
allowing people to, to congregate in public, you know, allowing more civil society to develop. Uh, they're generally supportive, which is and the IRGC is generally not supportive of that. I, they, there are real sort of disagreements there. But at the end of the day, the reformists don't generally disagree with the IRGC uh, on the major issues uh, in the region. Uh, so the United States' biggest disagreements with Iran, particularly regarding Israel and the Middle East, uh, are issues where the reformists and the hardliners aren't that far apart. Uh, and the IRGC is not that far apart from the reformists either. I think if the reformists were in control of everything, the Islamic Republic would look different. The IRGC would look different, but would not cease to exist. And things like Iran's support for Hezbollah, Iran's support for Hamas, Iran's involvement in Iraq or uh, in support of Assad in Syria, those things wouldn't go away. And so it's it's difficult, I think, to disentangle uh, the two. But what I don't think the reformists are, are secret sort of secular nationalists in disguise. I think often we we pin our hopes on the reformists and think that these guys are, are really what we want them to be. They are, you know, they, they, they speak English and so they can articulate themselves well. Uh, a lot of them like Mohammed Javad Zarif, the foreign minister. And so we, we often want to sort of think that that what they want for Iran is often what people uh, outside of Iran want for Iran, particularly in the diaspora. But generally speaking, these are these are members of the party, right? These are these are all folks that support the Islamic Republic. They support the the role of the supreme leader. They support uh, a very strong uh, role uh, for religion and society. Uh, they don't believe in you know sort of popular democracy completely. Um, uh, they don't believe in in sort of renouncing the constitution of the Islamic Republic and adopting something that's that's secular. So they're not all that different, right? We're, we're talking about shades of gray here. I don't I don't think it's it's anything more than that. They're Gorbachev, not Lekvaleza. Yes, I think that's I think that's correct. The book is Vanguard of the Imam: Religion, Politics, and Iran's Revolutionary Guard. The author is Afshan Astavar. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I really enjoyed it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You know, folks, there are a lot of people out there who have never heard the Lawfare Podcast, and that's your fault. Because some of you have not yet tweeted about the Lawfare Podcast. Some of you have not yet shared the Lawfare Podcast on Facebook. Some of you have not Instagrammed a picture of yourself listening to the Lawfare Podcast. And most of you, I think, have not rated or reviewed the Lawfare Podcast on whatever podcast distribution service you use. So if you feel guilty right now, you should. And you can rectify these problems right now. You can also buy Lawfare merch at thelawfarestore.com. And of course, you can thank Hadley Baker and Michaela Fogel, who were audio engineers this week. And you can thank the ever-present Jen Patya Howell, who produces and edits the Lawfare podcast. And while you're at it, you can thank Sophia Yan, who, as always, performs our music. And as always. Thanks for listening.